came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, welcome to our Disaster Capitalism and COVID-19 webinar. Um, we're really excited to host this, and we've got some amazing um, speakers today. Um, just short introductions before we get into this all excitement. Uh, I'm Ksenia Shmutina. Uh, I'm a senior, senior lecturer at the School of Architecture, Building Civil Engineering at Loughborough University in the UK. Um, and I'm also the, the co-host of Disasters Deconstructed podcast. And um, I will be hosting this session today with Jason von Redding. Hey, Jason. Hey. Uh, who is, of course, also, uh, which side of the screen you're on, I don't know, um, also the co-host uh, of Disasters Deconstructed podcast. Uh, Jason is also the associate professor at the Florida Institute of the Built Environment Resilience at the University of Florida. Um, and you will hear from Jason in a minute. Um, we're also joined today by six um, of our amazing comrades. So Claudia Gonzalez-Muzio, Mitul um, Bahanbati, Thomas Pais, Victor Marchesini, Wes Cheek and Devaldo Nickerk, and we cannot wait uh, to introduce them to you shortly. So, uh, a couple of house rules, which I'm all, uh, I sh I'm sure you're all aware of. You've done millions of webinars probably in the last six months, uh, but nevertheless. So, if you're watching us live, wherever you're watching us live, um, please post your questions and comments, and Jason and I will be monitoring the chat um, as our guests share and chat. And we will try to get through as many questions as we possibly can. Um, we, we have left, hopefully, enough time for a nice uh, conversation. But we will also follow up on social media uh, if we run out of time. So you can also post your questions uh, on Twitter. Just tag at DisastersDecon, so our um, podcast Twitter tag. Um, and before hearing some stories of disaster capitalism from around the world, we just want to give you a very quick introduction uh, to why we are running this webinar while we're here today. So I'm sure you're all aware that disasters present opportunities for change. And for some of us, this is about changing for the better. But unfortunately for many, um, it is about profiteering. It is uh, changes for profit, resource extraction, and reinforcing the business as usual status quo. And so this latter profiteering change or change for profiteering uh, view has in recent years uh, become known as disaster capitalism. Disaster capitalism manifests through the interplay between the neoliberal policies and practices and disasters, um, and it is very prominent in public and private spaces alike. There is a lot of anecdotal evidence of disaster capitalism. Um, just think of profiteering that has been happening as a result of the um, 2010 earthquake in Haiti. Um, and a group of us wanted to collect more evidence from different parts of the world to investigate how state and non-state actors are using the pandemic to consolidate control, to financially profit, and also to protect systems of oppression. 
the media has largely picked up the stories of disaster capitalism and disaster profiteering in the US and also in European states. Um, but our focus in this webinar will be on less widely understood examples, on the stories that we don't really hear um, in the news because very often they're simply not newsworthy. In the past few months, we have collected information from many different countries where disaster capitalism has manifested in uh, very different ways during COVID-19 pandemic. And we will hear from members of, of our working group that bring particular expertise and insight into each place. We were able to do this work thanks to Converge, a National Science Foundation-funded initiative headquartered at the Natural Hazard Center at the University of Colorado Boulder. Converge addresses social science, engineering, and interdisciplinary research and establishes and strengthens networks between disciplinary communities. Converge and the Social Science Extreme Events Research, SEER Network, founded 90 COVID-19 working groups for public health and social science research. Our working group on disaster capitalism and COVID-19 was one of these working groups. Broadly speaking, the working groups were looking at pressing methodological, ethical, empirical, and societal concerns that have become even more apparent in times of COVID. So a little bit more about our working group before we get to our special guest today. This working group includes academics, practitioners, politicians, and journalists from around the world. All of us looking for examples of COVID capitalism to understand whether social and economic justice are being served or whether state and non-state actors were using the pandemic to consolidate control to financially profit and protect systems of oppression. Some of the questions that we aim to answer in this working group are, how do exposure and effects vary according to status, privilege, identity, and oppression, i.e. COVID-19 is not a leveler? Number two, which workers are essential and how is the pandemic being used to provide corporate welfare? Three, how is the public organizing against COVID capitalism? And four, what alternatives are there to a return to normal? So we're still um, continuing this work in, with this amazing group of people and we would love for more people to join us in some of the initiatives that we have been going. So please let us know if you want to join the group. We welcome new members. Get in touch with Ksenia or me if you do wish to join. So let's begin. As Ksenia already said, we've got six guests today who will be sharing insights into disaster capitalism. Yeah, Chile, Brazil, Colombia, Japan, and South Africa. Over to you, Ksenia. All right. Let's roll. Um, this is really exciting. So our first guest today is Claudia gonzalez Musio. So very short introduction. Claudia is, the, uh, is an architect based in Chile. She has specialized in territorial planning and urbanism, uh, risk management, and cultural heritage. And in fact, we've met through cultural heritage and just the risk management um, work. Uh, Claudia has also be, been a consultant for the World Bank and um, ECOMOS. And um, she's also a lecturer on territorial planning and natural hazards in graduate programs at universities in Santiago and Valparaiso. Um, and as Claudia noticed, we had this conversation that very often, unfortunately, both of us are invited as uh, talking women to different panels, but not today. So over to you, Claudia. We're really excited to have you. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much and welcome to our group. Uh, I'll talk about disaster capitalism in Chile now, uh, which, as you know, is very linked to the neoliberal model that has prevailed since the Pinochet dictatorship. 
uh, and it's then maintained and intensified by all the governments that are followed, and which has resulted in a country where the richest 1% of the population concentrate 21%, 25% of the GDP, and on the other hand, 70% of the workers have an income of less than $700 per month. The COVID-19 arrived in Chile at the height of a social explosion and the discussion regarding the possibility of a new institution. The pandemic only made more evident social, territorial, and economic inequalities as caused the discontent of the population. So we'll see a lot of examples of what we call disaster capitalism in response to COVID. And one of the main works uh, we will summarize as follows. The first one is the Employment Protection Act aimed at uh, allowing employees to maintain their relationship with their employer without receiving a salary. Employers must keep paying for the workers' health insurance and retirement funds, and the workers can collect the unemployment insurance to support themselves during the emergency uh, while don't receive any wages. They had to withdraw the funds so they accumulate themselves in private institutions for the times they don't have a salary. This law was aimed at small and medium-sized businesses uh, at risk of bankruptcy due to economic instability, but it was used also by large corporations. These large companies, however, distributed part of the profits of 2019 among their shareholders at the same time they were using the law. Another example are food aid boxes. The government noted the delivery of 2.5 million boxes to the 70% of the 40% of the most vulnerable houses. The purchase and distribution of the boxes was made through large companies instead of supporting the local commerce, repeating the formula that they used uh, during the 2010 earthquake. The cost of assembling and delivering the boxes were higher than having the funds going directly to beneficiaries' account. And the same strategy was promoted by the CPC, the Confederation of Production and Trade, an organization that brings together the largest businesses in the country and which collected a fund of $100 million, establishing donations to some nursing homes for the elderly, the, some NGOs, donating medical equipment to public hospitals, the rapid tests for COVID, and also providing food boxes, all of these subject to tax reductions. An attempt was made to pass a law to suspend debts and payment for water, electricity, and gas bills during the emergency, but the government pointed out that this would be considered unconstitutional, and the companies providing these services which are all provided by private companies, could be affected by the state action claiming for a compensation. This was just a sign about the serious economic difficulties that people are going through. In response to the economic crisis that has deepened by COVID, and as a consequence of the insufficiency of the economic aid packages offered by the government, the Congress passed a law allowing the voluntary withdrawal of the 10% of the retirement funds of most of the population of the country. These pension funds are managed by private companies too, uh, and all of the companies were, of course, uh, refusing the measure. The average pension amount is so low 
that for people losing the 10% of almost nothing was considered minor but uh, to can afford the emergency. Also, it was believed that this measure would have a negative impact on the economy. At first, the stock market was uh, have reacted negatively, but the injection of funds to people allowed the reactivation of trade and at the same time allowed that people uh, reduce the amount of their debt. The problem here is that uh, it's not the state which is helping the people, but people are using their own savings. Probably as a result of the social upheaval and also the lack of adequate response from the government, a series of actions to resist disaster capitalism have been observed. Most of them in, uh, from part of the municipalities and local governments that, for example, pressured the government to suspend face-to-face classes in mid-March and together with the scientific community have insisted on incorporating primary health services into the COVID study. And also, from part of the local communities, uh, where a lot of emergent groups that arose from the social unrest protests occurred in 2019, have promoted initiatives to help those in need, claiming if the state doesn't take care of us, we will take care of each other. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Claudia. Thank you for, for this uh, really coherent um, introduction to what's happening in Chile. And I'm sure there will be lots of questions. We will unpack it um, later on. Okay. Um, next, I want to introduce um, Holmes Paez. We're going over to Colombia. Holmes um, currently works at the Department of Civil Engineering, Pontificia Universidad Javieriana, but go to Colombia. I'm sure I killed that. Um, Holmes does research in disaster risk management and construction management and economics. And we're really looking forward to hearing from you about the situation in Colombia. Over to you. Hello, everyone, again. Thank you for this invitation and this seminar. First, uh, I would like to say that in this case of Colombia, we stand through the collaboration with Gonzalo Lizaraldi and Benjamin Nerazzo from the University of Montreal. Then, uh, I would like to give you a short introduction about our case on disaster capitals on COVID-19. Uh, so, Colombia is a wonderful country, but at the same time, it is one of the unfortunate contrasts compared to the benefits of the capitalism model, and in this case, on COVID-19. Uh, Colombia is an independent country since the 19th century. It has not had a dictatorship except on one occasion in the 50s. It is currently part of the OECD, and according to its constitution, it's a rule of law with an economic policy and a liberal trend and capitalism, without saying that it's an extreme liberalism. In contrast, Colombia has a history of violence with guerrilla groups and drug traffic for more than five decades, with a considerable level of inequality and significant fragmentation in terms of social welfare um, at the country and city level. So it's a country of contrast. On the one hand, some people live in a very good economic, educational, and social condition. However, uh, a huge part of the population live in 
condition of poverty and social vulnerability. That is why we could consider this country as an example of uh, disaster capitalism, because it has not achieved a good condition for most of this population. What is the case, what is the cause of all of this? On the cases of the disaster, I would say that, uh, that a lot of had been written. Many people, economics, social, socialists, could attribute, attribute to the history of their institution, others to the influence of the country rich elites and the concentration of resources. Others to the lack of industry and technology, technological innovation. Others to poor distribution of income. And finally, a problem in the distribution and management of the land. There may be many cases that may not have a confusions answered about disaster capitalism in Colombia. However, the social instability that we are experiencing today, for example, since last year, there has been a permanent social protest that is an example that the situation in Colombia is bad. And it's interesting to think what is happening. With COVID-19, the situation, I think, has gotten worse. To date, we had um, around 14,000 deaths per 100,000 people. In other words, we are not the worst country, but we are not that good either. The consequences of the virus have been very bad in the country. We have extremely had unemployment in the country and many companies have gone bankrupt. The most worrying thing is that the people with the worst situation historically today will see their situation worse. What we can have improved the country in Brazil has been lost in a few months due to the mix between the problem of our system and the virus. It is very possible that the development in countries such as Colombia will be the most affected by the virus in the medium term and all of the discussion at the policy level that take, uh, take place in the work about, for example, the poor performance of the economy, the concentration of money in few people, and the problems of globalization. The government and Colombian society have tried to mitigate this problem. However, there is a feeling that these efforts are insufficient and a lot of social innovation is required to be able to overcome the consequences we are experiencing. Thanks, Thomas. So much. We look forward to speaking to you some more later. Over to you. All right. Yeah. Thank you, Jason. Um, that was great. So our next speaker, we're kind of moving uh, gradually. Uh, we're now going to Brazil, uh, and our next speaker is Victor Marcini. Hi, Victor. Hi, Ksenia. Hi, Jason. Welcome. Um, so Victor is a sociologist at the Brazilian Early, Early Warning Center, um, Canada. His research mainly lies in the realm of uh, citizen science methodology and co-production of knowledge. Uh, so let's hear what's happening in Brazil. Over to you, Victor. Yeah, uh, thanks for the invitation. I don't know if we have Brazilians in the chat, so uh, or uh, if you want to do some questions. Uh, I decided to focus uh, my my talk uh, on inequality. 
because inequality is one of the root causes of vulnerability. And, and, and when we see, when we check the data about land inequality in Brazil, uh, we are very uh, surprised to have an idea about land inequality. 10% of the large properties in, in Brazil occupies uh, 73% of the of the agricultural area in the country. So land inequality, I think, is one of the important dimensions to analyze uh, the way that uh, disaster capitalism is happening uh, in Brazil. And these largest properties, they are uh, producing commodities which have uh, high, high, higher prices in international markets and we and uh, such as uh, soy, uh, raw cotton, uh, mining, uh, or uh, so we have many important uh, commodities, and uh, these commodities are especially in uh, Brazilian Amazon. So now we are suffering a, a big dynamic pressure in uh, Brazilian Amazon. Uh, this pressure is happening in environmental protected areas and indigenous lands. And this, these lands are prone to deforestation, uh, fires, mining, acti mining activities, uh, cattle ranching, and land grabbing. So, uh, yeah, uh, I think uh, many of uh, you uh, checked, uh, heard the, the 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 talk of the Brazilian Minister of Environmental Issues. He uh, clear uh, said, "Let's use the the opportunity of this pandemic to implement our project of reducing bureaucracy, uh, dismantle all the environmental protection uh, laws." Um, yesterday we had um, a report about that uh, the minister, uh, the minister of environmental issues, he had a budget to uh, for environmental protection, but they he doesn't he didn't use this budget. So there are many uh, interesting process to analyze in Brazil and. Um, and it's interesting because almost uh, 50 years ago, the sociologist, uh, the sociologist Florestan Fernandes, he talked, he, he questioned if Brazil ha has, is a democracy or if Brazil is an autocracy. Because there are a minor national elite that has economic power and political power. And interestingly, these national elites, they have the support of the armed forces to implement uh, their projects. And many of these projects are um, related to the foreign cooperation interests in, in Brazil. And this is happening now. So it's not clear the, the division of private and public sectors in Brazil. These are uh, mixed. 
And uh, one of the interesting of the recent process that uh, we are uh, uh, following in the in the government is that uh, now uh, recently there was a study showing that there are, there were uh, three three thousand military officers uh, occupying uh, key positions in the ministries of uh, Brazil. Uh, Brazil has 23 ministries, right? And 11 are uh, achieved by uh, retired army officers. So um, I think there are uh, some, uh, I don't know if I have more time, Ksenia, but uh, we are feeling uh, some changes in terms of data transparency. Uh, I think you you have checked this about the, the case of COVID-19 in Brazil, that the, national, the Ministry of Health, they, they are hiding this uh, data. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Victor. I think um, quite a few of us heard about Brazil in the news, but probably not to the extent that you've just unpacked now. Uh, so if you um, guys have any questions, please send them to us either via Twitter or on Facebook or in any other way um, that you're watching. Uh, just post them. I I'm sure you've all got loads of things you want to ask. Thank you, Victor. So Mitchell Vahanvadi is a lecturer at RMIT University Sustainability and Urban Planning in Melbourne, Australia. Her research focuses on the long-term impacts of housing reconstruction projects after disaster, the theory and practice of socio-ecological systems resilience, and community-led approaches. Mithil will be sharing with us about the situation in India. So welcome, Mithil. We really look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for the introduction, Jason. Um, hello, everyone. Um, it, I would just like to ask you, uh, what would you imagine when you think about India? Uh, for me, India is a colorful, diverse place which represents democracy, but certainly not equality. And uh, today I'm going to present uh, my views uh, on uh, what India, what's happening in India. It is the second most populous country in the world, and now it is... Uh, it stands second in terms of number of COVID cases, which is nearing 5 million. The economy has crumbled. Um, 21 million people have applied for uh, salary. Um, um, they've lost their jobs and uh, they're asking for government help. And roughly 25% of them live under poverty line, which is not accurate figure. Um, but it is not the grip of this that India or the Indian people need to be concerned about. It is the grips of the current government, which like what you've heard from about Brazil and uh, Chile, it, it, uh, the government's main purpose is to steadfastly um, work towards consolidating their power and their Hindu nationalist ideology. So this government doesn't need COVID uh, or, or any other disaster uh, to 
see it as an opportunity to um, extend, expand, or grow their their motives. They have been doing um, or proposing uh, policies and uh, suggesting narratives which have lied on the lines of social division and um, economic inequality. So the three main tactics that this government, um, Modi government, which is uh, Bharatiya Janta Party, um, it translate, uh, translates as Indian People's Party. The three main tactics that he, they, uh, especially he, this, this one person, uh, the leader, has um, adopted is creating an image of himself as a dar daring leader. Um, which um, is a one-person-centric government, and he's the star hero of it. Um, and he has given himself so much power that he has ability to propose any action without worrying about its consequences. His mantra is populism at any cost. The second is the widened rule, the footprints of which can be found in colonial history. And this we have seen um, more so during COVID, but even prior to that, with regards to what has been happening in Kashmir, uh, which is forced inclusion of people to be part of India, or what has been happening at the border of Myanmar, where there is militarization and forced exclusion and uh, discrimination against the poor and the Muslim majority. And the third is chronic uh, capitalism. To improve, increase their power, this government has also um, teamed up with the local industrialists uh, uh, and billionaires. So now the whole machinery that runs India, which is the media, the, the people with money, and the politician are all in the pockets of this government. And which is the scariest bit, that this government can actually do whatever they want to do. And there are quite a few examples that have emerged in, um, in the recent past as to how this government is um, inciting um, division. And this would actually bleed the very soul of India. And I wouldn't be able to recognize what India would be if if the things he's promoting were to actualize. So there won't be much democracy or secularism, and it would just be a Hindu nation. Thanks, Mitchell. That's so interesting to um, hear from you about India. And I think one of the things that's emerging across the stories that we've heard so far is just the, the strong um, importance of of power in this and, and how we how we discuss power relations and the role of the state um, and democracy um, in each of these places. So thank you so much. We look forward to coming back to you later for the discussion. Thank you, Mitchell. Um, we were staying in that region. Yeah, thanks, Mitchell, for staying up. It's midnight now, I guess, right, in Australia. Um, we're now moving to Wes Cheek, who is also staying up. It's almost midnight in Japan. Hey, Wes. Hello, it is almost midnight in Japan. West Cheek is uh, a Japan Society for the Promotion of Science postdoctoral fellow at Ritsumikan University's Institute of Disaster Mitigation for Urban Cultural Heritage in Kyoto. 
Um, WAS has been conducting research in the Tohoku area of the Great uh, East Japan earthquake and tsunami since March um, 2011. And in one of the recent events, um, WAS was accidentally introduced as uh, a disaster socialist. And I think that this is the most perfect introduction to explain um, who WAS is and what it is he does. So over to you, WAS. Yeah, it was a mistake, but it was uh, completely, it was a uh, very happy accident. It was a great mistake. Well, uh, thank you guys for inviting me. It's great to be here with everybody. Um, and good evening, morning, and afternoon. I hope you're staying safe. Well, if you're in America, I hope you're staying safe from either the fires out west or the, the hurricane down south, especially in my hometown of Destin, Florida, where it's approaching today. And I hope you're staying safe from the pandemic everywhere. So uh, in regards to disaster capitalism in Japan, it can be... Um, Hard for us to see sometimes we look with the same lens that we use to examine it in America or maybe other Western settings. Um, for example, I lived in New Orleans for the last uh, almost decade, and there's so many things that really fit our definite like, textbook example of disaster capitalism. You can look around every day and see it. Uh, there's some of that probably in Japan, and, uh, but it's, it's harder to identify in some ways, I think. It's more obscured. But I think if you look back to the original definition in Naomi Klein's um, shock doctrine for disaster capitalism is at its core uh, using a moment of crisis to implement or entrench uh, neoliberal reforms. Uh, and I think we can certainly find those examples uh, across Japan. Um, so at the onset of the uh, of COVID-19, or, or I tend to say coronavirus, because that's what people say here, uh, there was a lot of what I would call disaster commercialism. So Uniqlo and other big brands started to make uh, masks. Uh, and so and lots of stores began to sell masks and alcohol wipes and things like that. And several well-connected politicians got busted for for um, hoarding masks that they had connections to get and then and, and trying to sell them at exorbitant prices. Uh, they were busted for that and had to give them to, to back to people who needed them. Um, but that's not really disaster capitalism, right? That's something that's kind of different that happens in all disasters. In a lot of ways, it's just providing providing a need. But if we're looking at Japan uh, from a larger perspective of disaster capitalism, we can look at Japan going to this series of transitions from the developmental state, as Thomas Johnson called it, uh, where countries like Taiwan and South Korea, where the state leads the manufacturing and planning, but it's still a capitalist economy, and look at that transition to the neoliberal state under the Nakasone administration in the early 80s, the Koizumi administration in the early 2000s, and the uh, Shinzo Abe administration, which just ended today, which has been the longest um, serving prime minister in Japan from 2012 to 2020. This is the second time serving. So uh, Prime Minister Abe's big, big push was for what he termed Abenomics, which was definitely neoliberal reforms um, for Japan, right? So this kind of Abenomics is where I think we need to look at uh, focus on disaster capitalism in Japan. And we can debate, there's also debate about whether Japan really made that neoliberal turn or not. But for our discussion today, we can just go ahead and take that as their supposition. So, so Abenomics had with it these, these three arrows, they were called, uh, monetary easing, fiscal stimulus, and structural reforms. And one of what's cited as the main success stories of Abenomics is the promotion of tourism, uh, especially from overseas tourism into Japan. Uh, it created a huge economic bubble of tourism. Um, so Japan has had a massive influx of tourists for the past decade. It's been hailed as a success. But it's been contested as a success, too. It brings about with it all the issues running tourist economies do, 
being exploitative. And at the same time, Abenomics set out austerity policies and regressive consumption tax, right, that heavily burdens younger people who don't have the stable lifelong employment opportunities that their parents enjoyed. Um, and this, this consumption tax was made and implemented under the the reasoning that everyone needed to chip in after the, the um, 311 triple disaster, the tsunami in Tohoku, right? Uh, so, of course, when, when coronavirus came, when COVID-19 set in, international tourism collapsed uh, and domestic tourism has dropped by 80%. Uh, it also meant that one of the big goals of the Abe administration, the Tokyo Olympics, the 2003 Olympics, had to be canceled. And these Olympics were marketed uh, for Tokyo and promoted as a comeback story from from 311, from the tsunami in the Tohoku region. Even though in my field work, most everyone I've talked to said, I don't know why, what the Olympics have to do with us. I don't know if they have anything to do with us. I don't know why they're saying it has to do with us. Uh, I'm not interested in watching them even. Um, now the... the uh, Rescheduling of the Olympics to 2021 is being sold as we have to have them. It's a comeback from uh, coronavirus. It's a comeback from COVID-19. So first it was we're coming back from from Tohoku, from the tsunami. Now it's we're coming back from COVID-19. It's a kind of mind-numbing boosterism that's endemic to disaster capitalism, right? The disaster event becomes the grounding motivation to carry on with misguided economic policies and endeavors that you were settled on doing anyway. And I don't think I need to lecture most of you about what is problematic about hosting the Olympics and, and all of the uh, neoliberalism, the problems of neoliberalism wrapped up in, in hosting the Olympics and bidding for the Olympics. Um, so in the middle of this pandemic, to try to keep tourism afloat, to keep the economy um, going, the Abe administration proposed a program, unfortunately named Go to Travel, exclamation point, Go to Travel, which used um, public funding, uh, a large amount of public funding um, to try to boost domestic tourism. So it, you could buy packages to go places and stay at hotels and the, the government would reimburse part of that to the hotel. They could offer discounted prices. This was being done during the middle of a pandemic when people are also being told not to travel between prefectures. Uh, so lots of confusion there, but there was a lot of preference um, saying we have to keep the economy running. And I think as many of us have said today, we talk about the economy, the economy, not a specific iteration of a kind of economy that we've chosen to have, right? Uh, so this kind of economic booster is running opposite to that. So interestingly, just a few hours ago, the Abe administration has ended. His new um, successor has come in, Suga, who continues is going to continue a lot of these same policies. And it'll be interesting to see how disaster capitalism looks going forward. But I think we're really going to see the effects of this years down the line, one being the, the what happens to the real estate market in cities like Tokyo when large companies realize that they don't have to own loads and loads of office space in the most important, uh, most expensive real estate market in the world. Uh, and you'll see this across, I think, across Japan and also problems with the universal health care in Japan, still privately run hospitals that aren't getting an influx of customers for elective surgeries and uh, other illnesses. So that's what I think we can look for in the future. Um, thank you very much, Mr. Game Jason. Back to where you Fantastic. Thank you so much, Wes. Um, yeah, there are already questions coming up, so uh, be ready, all of you, to answer lots of questions. Uh, and if you have more questions, do please post them. Uh, we will pass them to our participants.
Yeah. So whatever whatever platform that you are on, you can just type them into the comments and they come uh, up into our stream. And we will be coming to those questions shortly. But we have one more speaker that we want to go to. So we're, we're heading to South Africa to talk to Dewald Van Nieker. Hey, Dewald. Hi, Jason. Nice to meet Thanks for joining us. Dewald is a professor in geography and the head of the African Center for Disaster Studies at Northwest University in South Africa. He's the founder and editor-in-chief of the only journal for disaster risk sciences in Africa, JAMA, the Journal of Disaster Risk Studies. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dewald. Um, what's been going on in South Africa? Well, here you ask, Jason. Um, welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for, for the invitation. Um, I'll try and keep this brief. Uh, similar to what um, Victor has been asking, I want to ask everyone the question, what do you think of if you hear um, the word South Africa? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Um, and keep that in the back of your mind as I, as I go on. I think most people probably think of um, South Africa in terms of Nelson Mandela or of our abundant wildlife, our, our beautiful uh, scenery that we have in South Africa. Uh, but many people also obviously stop and, and Think about our, our history, and this is where, where I want to pick up uh, this uh, brief uh, discussion. And that is, um, that South Africa has, has somehow become synonymous with quality, um, that being entrenched through uh, a very unequal and unjust system that we're all aware of, um, which created a, a dual economy that we still sit with today. Now, everything after 1994, uh, democratic elections, uh, didn't turn into to a rose garden, unfortunately. Um, currently, there's uh, around about 90% of all South Africans are worse off now than they were um, under apartheid. Yet, we have more millionaires walking around um, on the streets. So, um, just as a bit of a background, um, keep, keep that in, in the back of your mind uh, when we talk about our, our COVID response. Now, in South Africa, our first response came um, on the 5th of March when we had our first case. We actually had it. We knew that by third of March. By the fifteenth of March, we um, instituted a national state of disaster, which means the uh, government is giving extraordinary measures towards um, specifically disaster risk reduction. Now, our definition of a disaster is quite unique in the sense that it allows for the declaration of a national state of disaster for preventative measures, and this is what what they did. The irony of it is that the power is given to the minister. A specific minister, and in the case of South Africa, the minister that, that has been given this power is also the minister that stood against our current president um, in the elections of, of the ANC going into the previous elections. So it's not a, a match made in heaven by, by any means. That being said, uh, on the 23rd of March, we went into a lockdown with a risk-adjusted uh, strategy that was put into place. So currently, South Africa is still in this, in this lockdown phase. Um, and um, in terms of the disaster capitalism component and the focus thereof, I must say, in South Africa, initially, they were in very wide support of what the government um, has done and what they were doing. There were immense buying from the private sector, from civil society organizations, from churches, etc. And the initial few weeks, I think the general populace felt that the government is doing, doing the right thing. However, questions about transparency started to creep in, especially when it came to the new COVID structures that was established by government. Now, the interventions that the government put forth, um, 
I would say basically happening in three phases. The first phase was uh, a kind of immediate tax relief um, phase. We the tax relief was given to um, individuals and companies. There was unemployment fund and wage support that was given to people that had uh, to stay at home that couldn't work. Um, obviously, the mobilizing of disaster relief funds. Um, emergency procurement procedures came into effect, which I'll come back to in a second. And a lot of funding of small and micro businesses. Now, this sounds absolutely marvelous because we're looking after uh, the, the small guy on, on the grassroots level. The second phase um, were towards focus towards, I think, stabilizing the economy a bit more. Um, and there, the uh, president um, managed to put forth this social and economic support package of in the region of about 500 billion rands, which is about $30 billion, um, which they got from, from somewhere. Um, and the focus there was to support the health sectors in, in PPE equipment, and they also focused on hunger relief um, or social distress and protection. All of this went into the previous funds that, that, I, that I mentioned or was supposed to go. And the third phase, which is, I think, the one that we probably going into in well in it now from this forward it is, is one of more economic recovery infrastructure programs um, implementation of certain economic reforms etc now this sounds absolutely wonderful i think however um i want to talk about something that i call disaster kleptocracy and that is that the current government coming from uh, the history in the past 10 years of basically stealing everything that they can put their hands on that looks like public funding has just gone on and the COVID-19 um, procurement procedure, emergency procurement procedure, I've just highlighted again how rotten the, the system currently even is. And it's very similar to the situation in India and, and Brazil. The only problem that we sit with here is that it is a, a specific um, party that's uh, in government that um, are basically fractured into different factions. And... Um, they are competing against what is basically public fund. These are highly connected political families, or politicians, um, that has rooted money that's supposed to go towards a COVID response towards um, the family. So extreme cronyism, nepotism that, that we see happening. What we also see is through this uh, our, our neoliberal system, uh, very easy for companies to all of a sudden now uh, come forth and now you have new companies or existing companies that now specializes in stuff like, let's say, uh, PPE. Um, however, we have smaller, uh, previously disadvantaged companies that's actually their core business that's totally cut out of the whole process of benefiting from um, the, the COVID response and the spending of, of these funds. So it means the end of all that, that we are talking about. However, our Public Financial Management Act and Municipal Financial Management Act makes fairly good provision for tender procedures. But in the past couple of years, uh, people have been, become experts in how to uh, come around um, the, the requirements of, of these uh, legislation, and uh, they are just blatantly being abused. Uh, so what the government has now done, specifically our, our current president, is, is mobilized a special investigation unit. They have already made some arrests. Um, no specific prosecution of any politicians that, we, that we've seen so far. Um, and there seems to be, be a clamping down. Now, 
what this will mean for the future, obviously, the, the, the economic impact to so many developing countries is huge for South Africa. Uh, we're looking at low growth. We had around about 30% um, unemployment rate last year coming into 2020. This has gone up to about 45, I think up to 50%, and all the knock-on effects associated with that. So in terms of, of the South African situation, uh, it's very much rooted within this disaster technocracy that has developed. Thank you, everyone. This was fantastic. I do hope you guys all out there enjoyed it as much as we have. Um, we've got some questions coming up. Um, uh, and I want to start with a question, uh, a question to all of you, um, and we'll, we'll just take turns. So, as we said in the very beginning, um, you know, US and UK has been, and Europe really, has been covered quite well in the news in terms of disaster capitalism. But what happens um, in your respective countries? So have these stories that you've managed to dig out uh, being covered widely in the national media? And have you seen these same stories covered in international media? Or have you really had to um, dig for them? Yes, thank you, Susania. Yeah, in, in my country, in Colombia, there's a contrast between the, in the daily media. For example, there's uh, two main par political parties in our country, so all the news are consuming you know, full of these two contrast ideas about disaster capitalism. On the right side of the political side, we have uh, a good and um, positive idea about the disaster capitalism. On, on the other hand, on the left, we have a completely different uh, ideas, ideology about disaster capitalism. So in Colombia, we have, we live in a contrast all days about that kind of thing. Yeah, I, internationally, you tend to get the same reporting on Japan for everything, which is uh, Japan's a nation of people who follow the rules and uh, orderly and all that stuff. And then national media here tends to echo that, even though it's not really the case at all. Um, some, But, you know, a lot of the political parties here have their own outlets. So, for example, the uh, Japanese Communist Party, the JCP, who... Uh, a very active and politically viable party. Um, they have their own newspaper, the Red Flag, Akahata, that, that uh, kind of pushes on this about the consumption tax, that, that maybe that's something that should be looked at as being repealed to help out with a disaster rather than subsidizing travel packages um, that, that cutting the consumption tax could do something. So um, you got to kind of look for other other outlets for voice and displeasure, mainly the parties that are out of power tend to through their outlets um, over this stuff. Okay, I want to um, come to a question that came through from Giuseppe um, on YouTube, I think. Giuseppe says, uh, thanks to Mitchell for her talk. How is Modi using COVID-19 to foster anti-Muslim propaganda in India? Thanks for the question, Giuseppe. Um, at many fronts, Modi is using... Uh, and uh, to propagate anti-Muslim agenda. Um, there, um, uh, after COVID, in the very early stages, Modi uh, promoted that 30% uh, of COVID uh, cases uh, spread was due to 
um, gathering of Muslims in New Delhi for a conference. Now, none of these people had legally broken any rules, so they had followed what regulations or um, lockdown was in place at that time. But this increased the stigma so much in the society that many Muslims have um, um, were rejected entry in the hospital. Some were frightened to go and get tested and others just avoided going to the hospital. So that is uh, one front. And just a few days ago, uh, Modi uh, laid foundation stone um, at uh, Babri Masjid, uh, a location which has been a, a point of conflict and has led to many riots uh, between Hindus and Muslims in India. He laid stone uh, to build a temple at a location where a mosque used to stand and was destroyed by Hindus. So he has seen this opportunity to uh, to just speed up all the things that he can do, which undermines and mutes the voices of the Muslims. Um, and the thing he has done in um, in Assam near uh, Myanmar border is he has got military there and uh, introduced acts which are um, you one has to register and uh, provide evidence to say that they are citizens of India. If they cannot provide that evidence, they have to leave India. So these are some of the people who are not educated, they're poor, they do not have uh, documents uh, to, with birth rights and birth name. And so there are about 20 million people who do not have their name on register. So they've completely uh, undermined the nationality of Muslims, that there are many details in, in, in that law and how they have changed it from 1990s to now to get rid of Muslims from India. So, um, and there's something completely different happening in Kashmir, but that all had happened prior to COVID. Um, but what the government communication access to Kashmiris even during COVID time. So people are not able to have access to phone or, or internet even during COVID times, which is really harsh. Thanks, Mitchell. I want to go to um, I want to go to DeWald with this next question from Justin Sharp. DeWald, you're uh, editor-in-chief of a disaster journal. So Justin asks, is disaster capitalism another phrase for resilience? often used in DRR terminology? Oh, goodness, I certainly hope not. Um, that's certainly not the way we, well, I understand it. Um, I mean, resilience, uh, similar to sustainable development, has, has come, kind of become a very catch-all phrase uh, these days. And uh, I think we, we need to understand resilience within the complex systems in which it functions. Um, I won't say that it's, it's a similar for capital disaster capitalism at all. I think it's uh, the, the focus must be to understand how various systems interact, um, what are the characteristics of, of these systems that lead people to become more resilient. And that uh, is not necessarily just within the capitalist system or neoliberal system. Um, the whole idea of resilience is to, to build that, those, those capacities um, everywhere. So I think my short answer would be, no, I don't think it's, it's a similar but we must realize that 
in order to become resilient, it functions within systems, and one of those systems being uh, a very much neoliberal system. Thanks, Noel. Um, we've got another question from Darian. Um, this is uh, to all of you again. So uh, what we've been um, seeing in the U.S. now is the intersection of um, different natural hazards, so um, hurricanes and also the wildfire with COVID-19. Um, but we haven't heard much about the intersection of COVID and different hazards in other countries. So um, do you have any insight on what's happening and what has been happening and how this intersection has been shaping in, in the countries where you are and what have you seen? Yeah, uh, we have seen uh, this intersection of, of hazards and mainly disasters sometimes, especially now in Brazilian Amazon. So uh, we have uh, not only deforestation, but uh, fires, right? And, and this is happening during the pandemic. So we have the, the problem of uh, smoke, right? that sometimes uh, even uh, burnings in fires in uh, Peru or Bolivia or Acre State, close to the, this region, due to the, uh, the smoke uh, travel and, and cause effects in other uh, areas. So I think this is one of the, the main uh, situations. And uh, especially in other um area of Brazil now is burning. It's uh, called uh, Pantanal. That, um, yeah, there, there it's, uh, I think it's a uh, natural heritage site, I think. So uh, there are several uh, examples. And uh, some months ago, we also have in Santa Catarina State in the south of Brazil, uh, a tropical storm. I don't know if it's classified as a, a cyclone of a hurricane, uh, but happens in the in the pandemic. So th there is a study that shows that after the the, um, the tropical storms, the the number of cases of uh, COVID nineteen uh, increased. And uh, yes, and then we have other situation in northeast of Brazil that are prone to droughts and desertification that the problem is uh, the lack of water. So, right. uh, yeah, there are many uh, examples of this. Yeah. And, and uh, just to finish, and uh, one problem is that uh, about disaster risk governance uh, is that uh, the, in Brazil, the Minister of Health is, uh, is uh, managing the, the pandemic situation. But for other disasters, is the national civil, uh, the national civil defense. So these two ministries ha have had uh, some problems. Yeah, I guess that's where the power and responsibilities come to play or don't come to play. And, um, unfortunately, we see that unfolding a lot. Whereas what's happening in Japan? Because I've seen um, that there's been typhoon recently, right? And quite a lot of flooding a couple of months ago. Yeah, moreover than a typhoon, we had what happened last year was just heavy rain. Kind of after the season, we have a rainy season, but after that, it's just very heavy rains. And in uh, Kumamoto and in, in Kyushu, uh, in Kyushu, there's a lot of rain that flooded um, these kind of mountain villages and, and larger towns. It was really bad flooding. A lot of people uh, were killed, um, including in a senior center. And one of the big biggest issues out of it was was they had kind of a sheltering plan where people generally go to um, school, gymnasiums, or local facilities. Uh, it, that wasn't the 
was a problem, but not the biggest problem. One of the biggest problems was they weren't able to have volunteers from outside the prefecture come in. They had to tell people specifically, please don't volunteer um, from another prefecture. When you know if you ever had problems with flooding, you need a lot of volunteers to come to just mud everywhere to clean this mud out. Uh, and people weren't able to do that. And I um, put that in opposition to what I was saying about the government also creating a $17 billion go to travel plan to have people mm-hmm. pay people to go to hotels and restaurants and things and fly. But yet the uh, emergency administrators in these local areas um, where they had heavy flooding had to tell volunteers, please stay away. So you have these kind of tensions that happening within the whole situation. Right. Uh, thanks, Rose. Yeah, it's really interesting how kind of narratives uh, contradict each other very often. Claudia, what, what about what about you? We have the same problem that uh, Victor mentioned in Brazil, because the Ministry of Health is uh, managing the pandemics, and the Ministry of uh, Internal Affairs manages uh, all of the other kind of disasters. But one uh, one thing we have seen during this month is, for example, the lack of water and droughts that it's been severe for the last 10 years, I say, and it's putting on risk uh, the survival of many people. And water is what you need to manage the COVID-19. So it's been a very big, big problem. And the other thing is that, uh, of course, we have uh, a lot of earthquakes. We have had a couple of earthquakes maybe last month. Uh, but they have been no severe enough, I think, that uh, to cause uh, many problems to the people that manage normally disasters. We'll see that probably the um, fires will be a problem during the summer, so we are preparing for that. Claudia, while I have you here, there's a question that came in um, specifically for you, just asking if you could um, explain briefly the link between disaster capitalism and the social security system in Chile? Uh, yes. What happened there uh, is a uh, social security system is run by private companies. Uh, there are uh, banks and uh, investment funds that run and uh, trade the, um, the savings from the people in the stock market. It's like the, the richest families in the countries uh, have made part of the fortune or most of the fortune by managing the savings from the workers. So, um, of course, they are not um, willing to uh, to transfer the the public uh, the security system to a public or a more solidarity system uh, because they will lose. Uh, some of the profit that they have gained in more than 40 years because the system is running from the 80s. Uh, this is the main relationship between the disaster capitalism and the, the social security system. It was imposed during the Pinochet dictatorship and it was created to create wealth. The problem is that wealth is for very few uh, and, not, uh, and the result of the pensions are still very low, like 70% of the pensions are less than the minimum wage. Thanks, Claudia. That's, uh, thanks for, for clarifying that and explaining what's going on there. I want to come to this question from a, a user on Facebook that asks, in the era of cascading disasters, are we really prepared or are we pretending to be prepared? 
India has seen massive floods this year um, all along the west coast due to southwesterly monsoon uh, winds and also in the area which sits at the very foothills of Himalayas, which is uh, adjacent to Bangladesh. Um, it is completely flooded uh, up to neck height and uh, has caused massive devastation. People literally had to forget about um, COVID. There was just no other way. So, yes, we are seeing a cascading um, effect. But as long as the political um, um, motives are intertwined with uh, either religious ideologies, which is the case in India, um, inequalities will continue to persist. And that is the very foundation we have heard from all presenters, that inequality is causing major problem that is at the very root of, uh, of all these challenges. So unless that is addressed, um, nothing else can be uh, uh, addressed. They had a difficult question, and uh, we keep uh, receiving difficult questions, which are really exciting. So we've got a question from Rima um, on Twitter, um, who says that it seems blurry on the divide of what makes an umbrella of disaster capitalism and what simply is a failure of proper governance. Um, so, Dewald, could you maybe elaborate on the difference between, you know, poor governance and disaster capitalism? I think I don't understand the question correctly. Well, well poor governance is, is exactly just that. It's incompetence by... Uh, it's a government system not be able to deliver the, let's say, in a democracy, the promises um, that they've made to to uh, the populace. Um, unfortunately, they are becoming synonyms in countries like South Africa, um, in the sense that the, there's such a focus on stealing um, from the state coffers that the, the focus on what is developed the people have long been forgotten. Um, and I think we in South Africa are in an extremely volatile and a sad situation. Um, if you look at our um, reconstruction and development plans we had coming into 1994 and where we sit today, and with all the resources that we have as a country, it's a crying shame that we are where we are. Um, for the life of my, I can't fathom that you will still see informal settlements in, in South Africa uh, 25 years into a democracy, uh, given the amount of resources given to government and that's available with, within the tax base, and all of that is being eroded. So it's, uh, you know, on, on the one hand, it is. Absolutely two different things, but these things tend to converge. And similar with, with the previous, as we talk, talked about the, the convergence of, of the disasters, we see this in governance as well, that all of these um, aspects converge. And I'm being very cynical and negative about it, um, but it is five o'clock in the afternoon in South Africa. But it seems like all of these things are, are, are converging into uh, one boiling pot of where um, people are, are just um, the 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 recent layer of elites are just reaping the rewards of the economic system. Um, yet, if you consider where the people of South Africa came from, um, it's, it's actually, uh, you know, it's, it's a total shame that this has actually happened and that we find ourselves in this situation. I'm sure I didn't answer the question, but that was my rant for this afternoon. Thank you, Deval. We love your rant. Thanks, Deval. I want to uh, shift over to a question from Kirsten. And she asks on YouTube, um, since political aspects are playing an immense role when tackling an unprecedented threat like COVID-19, would you say that, that a disaster becomes political 
right from the beginning. And I think this is something a lot of people on this call uh, will have something to say about. So maybe I'll go to um, Holmes, first of all. Sure. There are, in my country, many politicians that uh, make that kind of thing to, to, to provoke some political discussion around the COVID-19. So, completely right. It's, it's completely understandable that in my country, there are so different uh, positions about the, 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 the management of this COVID-19, for example. In the capital city, Bogota, and other level in the national government, there are uh, political fight against uh, over the, the COVID-19. For instance, uh, the mayor of the Bogota city explained that more um, liberals, uh, ideological forms to manage the COVID-19. For, um, in the contrast, the government, the national government, managed this kind of thing in, in other ways. So there are so uh, many players in, in these games. Thanks, Holmes. I think it's it's interesting because it's it's you often get people that um, you know accuse you of being so political with your research, and um, I think it's something we we constantly have to reinforce is that disasters are political, right? So, anyone else want to comment on that? Yes, I can just maybe come in if you go back to nineteen was it seventy six with the article that Ben Wisner and, and Kenneth Westcott and Philip Keith wrote, um, taking naturalness out of natural disasters. That is. That is it. We're still there. We're still in 1976. Um, nothing has changed, mate. And we have to do with power and the spending of public funds and making those decisions, the one person over the other, if you're dealing with, with, with politics. So I absolutely agree with Christian. This is, we, we have any type of disaster situation, the first thing that comes into play is the politics. Absolutely. Thank you, Tawa. I'll just make one more point, Jason, is that okay? Go ahead, Mitchell. Um, so um, as someone who is not from disaster studies once asked me, um, so who manages uh, emergency management when there's a disaster? And what happens when there's a pandemic? Is there a difference? So I said, yes, there is a difference. Uh, during emergencies, uh, due to, say, earthquake or floods, uh, there's a whole emergency management department which is set up and they manage the situation. And uh, money from national government coffers moves out to state and so on and so forth. But when there is a pandemic like uh, COVID, we also, the government also needs to work side by side with the healthcare professionals. And something that has been exposed in India and probably in a lot of developing countries is that uh, their government-owned uh, healthcare is, we're just so ill-equipped to deal with this situation and uh, they should have been updated uh, and money should have been invested in it for, for a very long time but hasn't. So they need to play catch-up but yes, government has to play a major role in even building that relationship with the healthcare professionals. I'm going to come to um, Wes with this question from Isabella. She says, uh, she asks, do you think that 
disaster capitalism is a global historical process or a new economic social configuration that catastrophe contributes to highlight. Do I have to make a decision on that? <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a big question. Uh, I don't think I can answer that. Is it or is it not? Yes, and of course, Isabella, it's just a very, very good theoretical question. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. Is it new? I would say that having these kind of, we just talk about politics and disasters and every disaster is political and the beginning through how you form risk, the social formation of risk is political. All these things are political. So is it new in that sense? No, but is it, is the way we see it working now new because we have different kind of economic systems or ways we do think? Yeah. And I think disaster capitalism, we're putting an emphasis on, on neoliberalism, right? Because we're seeing these ways that it acts in, as a function of neoliberalism. But, you know, if you reconstructed the entire political economy, it was something different. Um, we'd see disasters uh, under that lens. So it's always going to be uh, change, changing with the power structure of the times, right? Which is why we advocate for be, having a more um, equal power structure. Uh, but I, I don't, I think it's always going to be new and always not new. Like the disaster is always going to be tangled up in power structures and tangled up in politics. So it's going to reflect, reflect the current, the current arrangement there. Does it make sense at all? It does make sense. Thanks, Wes. I want to come to you, Claudia. Um, we have a question from Mirsin over on YouTube who says, what can be said about the abuse of power through implementation and establishment of legislature that isn't built on um, existing disaster management acts and policies? Uh, in the case of the pandemic, um, I think the governance that we have for disasters didn't work. It hasn't been used or implemented. They have tried to create something new without any proper governance uh, based on the Ministry of Health, uh, but run by the uh, necessity of the, the, the need of keeping the economy uh, functioning. Uh, the problem is that uh, it was evident, uh, it, it was made evident that uh, a lot of informality was going on in the, in the working system here in Chile. So uh, they had to manage how to protect people and protect the economy. They decided in many ways to protect the economy instead of protecting people. Um, so, but as you said and you have mentioned before, everything is political. And uh, we have seen that most of the decisions have been taken considering politics and economics instead of the welfare of the population. Um, in the case of disaster management, we try to reduce vulnerabilities and reduce inequalities that cause or increase risk. And we have seen that this pandemic has increased risk a lot uh, from the previous situation. Yeah, I, I think the world mentioned the, the state of public calamity at national level. Uh, we also uh, had this in, in Brazil, I think. Um, it follows what Giorgio Agamben said about the state of its exception. And during this, the, the law is suspended and the, uh, the, the president or the, <laughs> the, um, 
they, they can in, implement uh, some uh, spe special actions to to to, um, to reach the special needs. Uh, and during this state of exception, you can create mechanisms for biopolitical mechanisms, but also necropolitics uh, mechanisms, as uh, Giorgio Agan said. Uh, in Brazil, I think we have some problems regarding, especially regarding data. There is an NGO uh, called uh, in, in Rio that are trying to show uh, the, the, the number of deaths in, in slums because the official data uh, is not showing this. So uh, I think uh, one, and at the same time, we have uh, a, a special area in, uh, arising in Brazil that disaster law studies, but they are also discussing the pandemic law studies. So this is important to try to reduce the, the, the power of the, the national uh, government and also the, the social movements. I have social, mo I, I, I think social movements has, have an important role uh, to, to do this. And one of the, the first things that the, the national, the new president did was to uh, persecute, I think, the, the, the social movements in Brazil. That one. I want to come to a question from Michael, who asks whether whether we think that disaster capitalism is simply an extension of like ongoing or normal capitalism, or in disaster times is it something else or something extra? Uh, I think it's there is always a space for keeping things more neoliberal each time. <laughs> uh, we have seen that uh, after each disaster, I think. And uh, you have to remember that uh, the uh, neoliberal experiment began here in Chile. And most of the um, politics regarding neoliberalism have been implemented here. Uh, each time, each disaster becomes an opportunity for people to, or for enterprises, or for some people to have profit, to, to, to to implement neoliberal new policies. Uh, we have seen this uh, after the 2010 earthquake with the reconstruction, uh, with the provision of uh, emergency shelters, with the provision of uh, uh, economical aid for the families. And we have seen that also now. Uh, the, the difference now is that people is becoming aware of that. Is becoming aware of inequalities, and uh, because of the social upheaval that occurred in October uh, 2019, we have now discussing. We have now the possibility to discuss a new set of norms, uh, a new set of rules, and we are discussing the possibility of a new constitution that we expect, uh, if anything is going well, that we can change. Uh, maybe the economic, the social political system, and also the uh, to the values inequalities is our dream. I don't know if that's going to happen or not. Thanks, Claudia. Uh, um, 
I want to just uh, finish with this question from Claudia Santos on YouTube. Um, and she, she again is coming back to this idea of uh, neoliberalism and, and uh, its basis in kind of in exploiting inequalities. Um, and she asks, is, is it illusory to think of any positive transformation in our countries without a, a change to our economic system? Yeah, yes, it is. I yeah. mean, yeah, it, it would be. Uh, I don't know what kind of, um, I, I don't know how you change it without changing the larger structure, right? I mean, you can mitigate, mitigate, here we are, disaster without mitigation. You can mitigate the problems with it, but I mean, the inequality is going to be there because the system of neoliberalism needs inequality to keep running or else it won't keep running. So, yes. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, that was really interesting. Thank you, so, thank you all so much for contributing. And also, thank you for all the wonderful questions. Um, just before I wrap up, I've decided um, that I'm going to read you a very, very short snippet from Galeano, which I think summarizes everything that we've discussed um, so nicely. Um, so this is um, a short snippet from the story that Galeano wrote, and it's called Other Natural Disasters. In 1879, after three years without rain, the Indians numbered nine million fewer. It is the fault of nature. These are natural disasters, say those who know. But in India, during these atrocious years, the market is more punishing than the drought. Under the law of the market, freedom oppresses. Free trade, which obliges you to sell, forbids you to eat. India is not a poor house, but a colonial plantation. The market rules. Wise is the invisible hand, which makes and unmakes, and no one should dare correct it. Uh, thank you for, for, for indulging me uh, with this. Um, but I think this is everything that we've discussed now, and this topic isn't new. Um, I do hope there will be a day where we won't have to discuss it, um, but perhaps not in our generation. So thank you, um, all of you, for contributing to um, all the effort um, and for everything that you do. And I'm sure everyone really enjoyed listening to the insights that you provided today. Um, and for our audience, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, it's been excellent to have all these questions and comments. And please, um, if you're not following us yet, do follow us. Do follow us on Twitter, Facebook, on Instagram at DisastersEcon. And we'd love to hear what you think. Thanks everybody for for joining us, especially Mitul and Wes. It's really late. You guys need to get to bed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Bye everybody. Bye. 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 Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time.